Hello and welcome to the Mind and Soul podcast. This talk on the power of belonging was given at Mercy UK in Bradford. You can find out more about them at mercyuk.org. The talk is given both to the staff at Mercy UK and also to the people who are currently residents on their six-month programme. And Will and I have written a few books together. We've written a book on worry, one on guilt, one on perfectionism. And they're, they're fairly straightforward. Theology, cognitive behavioural therapy, coming together, looking at how do we deal with guilt and depression. You know, if I've done something wrong, I'm guilty. But if I haven't done something wrong, and it's just my depressed brain making me feel guilty, what's the, what's the answer to that? Because there's no point in taking that to God and asking for forgiveness, because he's saying... You're ready. I forgave you last week when you, when you asked that. You know, but you've still got that niggling mood-related thought. So we've done those three books that are sort of aimed at grumbling anxiety, depression, that sort of thing, and then perfectionism or overachievement. But we wanted to write a book on um, vulnerability and belonging and what it really means to be true to who you actually are, and get into some of the more sort of deeper sort of personal questions, and which I guess is one of the things that, that Mercy's into as well. Um, so there's a few, <coughs> few quotes that have been sort of picked out by the publisher, this is one of them, <coughs> to live and lead with relationship as a priority is counter-instinctual, and yet it's the step to harness the power of belonging in your life. So often we lead with, with tasks, like a role, like, you know, I am the program director or I am the resident or what, whatever your, your, your sort of title is, mm. but actually thinking about relationships really, this is where human growth actually happens. And those things come with skills, but it's, it's, it's trying to get down to the relationship level. To find mastery over shame is to be released not only to greater authority in leadership, but also greater authenticity in leadership. So one of the things we'll talk about, about this morning is, is shame, which is a bit of a sort of ambiguous kind of thing. Sometimes it is, you might specifically have done something wrong, like we're going to talk about the story of Moses. He did actually kill an Egyptian. That was quite a bad thing to do. Um, but other people, their shame might be different. They might feel like a fraud, or you might have heard of imposter syndrome as a sort of idea. Okay, so, so if we don't really deal with that, I, we've met lots of leaders who they could be successful chief executives leading businesses, but they, they don't really deal with this fact they feel like an imposter and they're not quite sure how they got to where they've gone. And they're just kind of hanging on until retirement and hopefully no one finds out. Um, so there's this, this, kind of, this kind of thing. And just to say, you know, the book is aimed primarily at leaders, if that makes sense. But the reason we thought it might be a, a good talk to do for everybody, all staff members and all residents, is that you don't really have to have a a title to be a leader, we're all, we're all leaders, you can lead others, so you can lead people who you report to, you can lead your manager, for example, and we can also all lead ourselves as well, and that's a big part of coming on a Mercy programme, is learning how to lead yourself, yeah. and have influence over, over, over yourself as well, so a lot of this is very relevant to anyone, we're, we're all leaders, even if we're just leaders in our own lunchbox, you know, so we might need to start there and, and, and kind of work out, but that's okay. Ultimately, we need to allow our false selves to die if we're going to start living, let alone leading. So again, it's, it's all sort of getting back to this, who is your false self? Who is your shadow self? Who do you project? So, you know, am I a... To a certain extent, I'm wearing my professional 
mask here today, and that's okay because you probably don't want to see me as a dribbling wreck. But you know, and you also want hopefully some professional wisdom and expertise throughout the day. But I can't wear that mask the whole time. It's, it's got to come off sometimes with some people, with, with, with good friends. So if we constantly have this sort of projection of the false self, um, you know, one of the things we've talked a bit about is who do you share that with, who are your people you can be honest with versus perhaps other people who you are going to wear a professional persona of some kind. And this is very much a sort of topic in, in the sort of secular world at the moment. If you read much about businesses and leadership forums. Um, if you go back sort of 10 years, it was all about, um, you know, strategies for leadership and team building and things like that. But now it's actually all about relationships and values. So rather than, you know, the bottom line of an organization being profit, people are now saying, actually, it's values. You know, the customer is actually always right. We've known that for 30 years, but businesses are actually starting to take that seriously now because they know that if they do that, then the profit goes up as well. Yeah. Um, and Merz has always been a value-based organisation. Yeah. Um, you know, rather than hierarchical pyramids and those sort of diagrams, you know, chief executive and everyone sort of flows down from, from that, you know, it's much more about networks, teams, mm -hmm. supportive leadership rather than <coughs> directive, you know, freedom to experiment, freedom to make mistakes. One of the great things about Mercy is that it's always been like, well, have a go. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I remember chatting to Debbie at the beginning, you know, when she was sort of writing the programme, and she was like, well, I'm just going to write something and see if it works. <laughs> but it was, you know, you, you, you bring in a different module. And then you think, well, actually, that module's not working, so we'll take it out. And the freedom to experiment with things, you know, if, if there was a, a sort of cure, you know, if that makes sense for the, for the human condition, this side of heaven, we don't have it yet, so let's experiment. Let's, let, let, let's try different things. Let's, freedom and trust, you know, do we trust our person who is running the kitchen teams to start introducing a new way of doing that? And let's, let, let's all cook together in a different way. Let's sing a song. That's a bit stupid. I don't know, whatever you're going to do. One of the things that I love, as um, Bibi was saying, I've just spent two years in New Zealand. And um, whenever we would do a, a sort of committee meeting in the NHS, it would always be right. We start off by reviewing the minutes from the last meeting. And it's such a depressing way to start a meeting because you, you go back over all the problems that were identified in the last, last month's meeting and all of the actions from that meeting that haven't been done yet because everyone's mm -hmm. forgotten about them. And such a depressing way to start a meeting. So one of the things that, that my boss in New Zealand used to do is to start every meeting with a good news story. Yeah. So I think that's one of the things I want to adopt is that you know, someone, yeah. someone gives a good news story from the last week and then we'll get into our yeah. concept. And yes. it could be something like, you know, the profits are up, or we've managed to recruit someone, or it could be something like I had a great conversation with someone in the corridor, or, or, or something like that. So, leadership is very much moving in this direction, and the corporate world is as well. But sometimes we get stuck on that. Sometimes we have, you know, management <laughs> skills, leadership strategies. I'll come on to Anglican damp in a bit. But you know, if you if you do go off to, to university, you know, yeah, you might get study skills. For example, you know, this is this is the way to write an essay, beginning, middle, and end. You know, we, we've probably benefited from some of those skills when we've been at been at school. And leadership strategies like team building or 360 degree leader. You know, these strategies are not wrong strategies, but we need to get inside that. Mm -hmm. So otherwise, we feel like a fraud, and we realise that we've left, we've led up, down, back, and sideways. You know, it's we need to get to the deep bit. And this is a random Anglican church. It's not any particular church, but. Will tells a great story, my, my fellow author tells a great story about when he first was a, a vicar, so he'd done his Anglican training, he's a teacher by background, 
done his Anglican training, and he, he, he took his first church. And he went into the church, and it was, this, it was in Harrow, it was a small church down the bottom of the hill in, in Harrow. Bosch runs up the top of the school, which you, you don't go to Eton, you go to Harrow, that's kind of, I think, how it works if you're in the cabinet. But it wasn't that church, it was a small one down the bottom, and he, he went in, and it was a fairly standard Anglican church. And he went in, and there was this smell that, you know, he assumed was what he called Anglican damp. And you know quite often when you go into an older church, it smells a little bit musty, and you're not quite sure if it's the hymn books or the people, but, you know, it, it, it's got that sort of slight sort of musty, you want to kind of like open all the doors and sort of, you know, get, get rid of that, that smell. So he thought, well, it's just how this church smells, and we'll, we'll, we'll try and fix it over time. And then he found out that you know, the toilets were a bit knackered and a bit naff and this kind of stuff, so we replaced the bathroom and kept doing things for the church, and painted it, and we put some air conditioning in it, and there was still this smell of Anglican damp that was playing there. So he thought, there must be something else going wrong with this building. So he had a bit of a dig around. Around the back of the church, he found this little door, and this little tiny little door, sort of Alice in Wonderland little door. And he said to the, the guy who'd been working at the church, he said, what's, what's behind that door? He said, oh, you don't want to go, oh, you don't want to go down there. You know, like, well, I mean, I've been years, you know. So it's one of those kind of things. He said, you don't want to go there. He said, no, no, look, I'm the vicar of this church. Open it. I command. You know, so, so he, he finally, they produced this massive rusty old key and, and opened this door up. And what they did was he went down and he was sort of armed with a stick and his iPhone. As he it. So he sort of goes down to do battle with the cobwebs. And went down and he got three steps down. Splash. He was doing water. And he said, there's this big sort of water going on. And it turned out that in the basement, the basement of the church was completely flooded. And had been for the past 20 years. And floating around in it was all this sort of camping equipment from the old scout group. And all this kind of sort of rotting sort of, sort of stuff. Who's seen the movie Fight Club? Yes. Remember at the beginning, they go down to the basement. The basement is, is flooded. And it's, it, it's that sort of imagery. And the reason Fight Club... Guy Chuck Palunic who wrote it, he, he wrote each scene in Fight Club to deal with a particular concept or theory by Sigmund Freud. Mm -hmm. And the, the basement is the unaddressed shame basement. Mm -hmm. That is what it's addressing in Fight Club. And that's what Will understood this church. You know, um, those of you who know Fight Club, the guy who's this sort of semi functioning employee mm -hmm. who ends up meeting Brad Pitt and they start Fight Club together, he's just filled with shame and uncertainty with, with, with where he is. And there's a lot of people, and I guess one of the ideas behind this book is there's a lot of people who haven't actually addressed the shame basement. They've tidied up the top bit, got themselves a new hairstyle, done some CBT, whatever it is. You know, the top <coughs> looking very glossy, but there's this Anglican damp sort of smell pervading that you feel like a fraud or an imposter. So, so that's the sort of idea behind this sort of shame sort of idea. It doesn't necessarily have to be that you've murdered somebody. It, it's more likely to be this sort of I've never really looked under the bonnet that hard, and to be honest, I don't particularly want to, <laughs> you know, because I, I know that I've got a couple of issues here, but I'm just hoping I can sort of wing it, or fake it to make it, or whatever mm. it is, and mm -hmm. the problem with fake it to make it, of course, is it works. Yeah. yeah. So we, we do fake it, and we make it, because people think, well, that's a nice hairstyle, you can put it work for me, or, you know, the, these, these things work, superficially at least, but they're not really addressing, addressing the shame basement. Yeah. There's a lady called Maya, Maya Angelou. Um, she wrote a book called I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. And she's very important in the sort of um, black emancipation movement in, in, the, in the United States. But she's, she's got this sort of great quote. 
And we said the ache for home lives inside all of us, the safe place where we can go as we are and not be questioned. And that's the antidote to shame. Okay, so shame hides away. But if we can find home, a place where we can truly be ourselves, and hopefully for many of you, mercy will be that place, you know, increasing as you begin to trust it in your six months. It's a place where you can, can be yourself. But there's obviously a bit of a tension, you know. Ultimately, theologically, we're told that our home is, 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 is heaven. So what does that mean? Are we kind of on pause at the moment and, you know, we just ignore the shame basement and then finally again, when we get to heaven, we'll, 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 we'll feel at home? Or is it here and now? You know, is, can we have this feeling of belonging, this sense of belonging, this sense of home now? What does it mean to be, to be helped, to be supported, to be surrounded by other people? So we're thinking about this, this idea of home versus shame. And the Moses kind of story, you know, was he, was he at home in Egypt? He kind of was, but then he, you know, he'd been adopted into the palace, hadn't he? So he, he was brought up as an Egyptian prince, effectively. So he, was, he had all kinds of sort of cultural dislocations. And then he, then he murdered the Egyptian. And in his shame, he, he, he ran away. More about Moses later. But leaders, leaders are very good at hiding away from it. They, they often... What's called hide today I am hiding in plain sight. Okay? Mm -hmm. I'm pretending to talk about vulnerability. I'm not actually being vulnerable. Mm -hmm. There's a subtle though I am going to be a bit vulnerable at various different times. That was actually being vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So I don't have to tell you that, you know, <coughs> my dirty habits or whatever it is. It's, it's it's not about sort of sharing that kind of I don't have any, obviously, but um, <laughs> you know, it's not about me telling you everything from the front. But it's it's about saying, do you know what there's a lot of people who who stand up and pretend to share, mm. but are not actually sharing. Mm. So we need to call that out and say, hello, are you in there? Yeah. You know, you feel as though you want to sort of poke them. Are they, are they actually a plastic person up on the stage? And you think, Can, I just want to see the real me. I want to see yeah. the real Jesus. You know, I want, to, I want to find this real person. And I say, fake it to make it. This whole thing, who's heard this phrase, you know, I want to be the best version of you. Yeah. I don't want that. I want you. Yeah. I don't want the best version of you. I don't want you all to be sort of, you know, we were joking when Debbie was standing in front of my slide, it gave me this sort of orange glow. Um, you know, we don't want the sort of tanned version of you or the best version of me. I want, I want you with, with all your sort of warts and all, if that's the right description, okay? And one of the, one of the great things about Mercy is that when you come here, people, you know, we're joking upstairs about working for a Christian organisation, and clearly everyone on staff is absolutely perfect and never says anything rude about anyone else. But you, 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 you see everyone, warts and all, don't you? Yeah. And residents and staff alike, you know, the tissue box is coming out more often yeah. than, than, than we would like. Okay. So if we don't deal with it, what we do is we get this, this rat race in the world, don't we? J. John, the um, evangelist, has a great quote. He says, you're in a rat race, you're in a rat race. But even if you win, you're still a rat. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, or, you know, another thing perhaps is, you know, you've been climbing the ladder rung after rung after rung, and you get to the top of the ladder, and you realise that the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. Yeah. And actually, you want to be over here. So actually, I think this probably was one of the reasons why I went to, went to New Zealand. Um, in that I'd become a consultant psychiatrist, I'd been a consultant psychiatrist for 10 years. I had a whole bunch of things that I was doing, like I was on the board at... Mercy and started the Mind and Soul Foundation and we kind of run that for 10 years. And I think kind of, I'd run out of steam, mm -hmm. if that makes sense, you know, and the ladder was 
quite high, and I've got a bunch of letters after my name and all this sort of stuff, and, uh, um, you know, but just hadn't met the Queen yet, that was still... <laughs> One day, I have sat next to Prince Charles, um, but, but the, ladder was, the ladder was leaning against the wrong wall, and I thought, I, just, I don't actually know how to deal with this, so I just kind of almost need to get out of here, if that makes sense. So that, that wasn't my primary reason for going. The primary reason for going was I grew up... Um, in Mauritius, my dad was an engineer and spent some time living in Mauritius. My wife was was was, was from Scotland, but she was born in Jamaica. And we thought, wouldn't it be great to go and spend some time in a warm country yeah. with beaches, yeah. where the kids can run around yeah. for a couple of years while they're still at primary school, and then you know we'll come back for for secondary school and um, serious things like exams and girlfriends and this kind of stuff starts, doesn't it? But as you know, primary school kids are very adaptable. So so we did. We thought we're going to go for a couple of years. We kept the house and. Came back, which is what we thought we were probably going to do. But I suspect deeper inside was, hang on, what have I built? You know, I've I've done all the things I ought to do. You get married, you have kids, you you get a job, etc., etc., etc. And it's like, what what do you do after that? You know, and it, it's this sort of not faking it to making it. Hopefully, it wasn't quite that bad. But it's like, hang on, there's something I need to think about, something I need to address in in me, and also in Will the same. You know, he's. Um, led a church, this damp church that he, he then fixed. He, what do you do with a flooded basement? You pump it out and you put a gym in it. <laughs> so it used to give smell, and now you've got big guys working out in the morning. That's the best, best thing you want. So that's what he did in that church. But then he moved to Holy Trinity Brompton and, you know, sort of speaking at Rock Nations and all this kind of stuff. And it's just like, hang on, how long can I keep this going for? You know, how, how long can you be a speaker of these, of these things for without really draining the shame base yeah. from having a good look within. So yeah. he started writing the book, realised he couldn't write it by himself because we put all these books together. So he phoned me up in New Zealand and said, uh, will you help me write the book? Mm -hmm. So I sort of helped him write it. But actually, I think it was my journey as well. Mm -hmm. It's one of the nice, nice things about that. Mm -hmm. Another thing, of course, is if you are faking it and someone says, wow, that's an amazing talk, they're not really talking to you. They're talking to your false personas. So they say, wow, that was an amazing talk. And then you go home at the end of the day and you feel flat. Part, part of that is coming off the adrenaline. Part of that is because no one actually really thanks you. They, they thank the bit of you that you chose to share that day. So, so you know, we don't get reward. And if, if we do get nice letters and comments and reward and gratification, it doesn't stick. It wasn't actually really addressed at us. It was addressed to the best version of us or whatever that was. You know, it, it needs to be, I love you because I love you because I love you because I love you because I love you. You know, that is the where we've got to kind of get to. This is a slide that sort of symbolises this sort of homesick. You know, we, 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 we come from a home as Christians. We come from Eden, ultimately. That's our ancestry. Adam and Eve, wherever they were, in some garden somewhere near Turkey or Northern Africa or somewhere. And, you know, whether or not you believe Adam and Eve literally existed or whether you believe that that was the the story that was told. We, we come from a place of being held at the start of the Bible. And at the other end of the Bible, we are heading for heaven, for home. And, you know, we're in the middle, we're homesick. And what we mustn't do is look back with nostalgia. We mustn't look back and think, oh, wasn't it good when we all had Walkmans rather than iPhones? We've <laughs> seen Guardians of the Galaxy. Mixtapes. You know, now, now it's a Spotify playlist. Um, or do we sort of beam me up Scotty? 
I want to be in heaven. But actually, we are in the middle. We are homesick to a certain yeah. extent because we're not spiritually fully complete. So we hide ourselves with all these masks and sticking plaster. The word personality comes from the Latin for persona, which means mask. That's what the word personality means. It means mask. So, you know, you think about your personality type. Not just a, I'm an ENTJ on the Myers-Briggs. That means I'm Princess Leia, by the way. Um, you know, but, you know, what, is, what does it actually mean to, for me to reveal my true, true personality? And yes, I have extrovert tendencies, so I am an ENTJ from that point of view, but what does it actually mean to be me? me? Enough waffling from me, let's take a few minutes to think about some of these kind of questions, just, just do it in your rows that you're sitting with maybe. Do you feel homesick? Do you identify with this sort of spiritual, in, I'm in the middle, I'm not, not like in Eden, I'm not in heaven yet, do you feel homesick? Do you feel homesick at mercy? Um, how, how much is mercy a hope? What examples have you seen of insecure and isolated leaders? You know, have you been on the receiving end of some leader who is basically flailing around with a big ball of chain, just taking out people around him because he's so insecure? How might it be possible to help them? What do you do for the insightless leader who is causing havoc? Well, you could wait until they have a nervous breakdown, which is probably likely to happen. But better, how do you engage people beforehand? So there's a few questions to to think through there and I'll just be quiet for a few minutes while you regain your energy levels. Okay, so by the way, those of you who are sort of just trying to scribble, scribble down this, this chart and that sort of thing, I'll make these slides available um, as, as, as a PDF and send them to Debbie so we can put those somewhere useful so I don't feel you have to, to scribble too frantically. Um, I'm not going to, like I say, be as open as you want to this morning. We're dealing with potentially quite deep stuff, okay? So you can talk as much as you want to. I'm not, generally speaking, going to get feedback from the chat, chat sessions, but it's just for you to have a bit of a chance to reflect on it. Yeah. So we get a different model. We do have a different model as Jesus as the radical belonger. This is Jean Vanier, who has founded communities of people with learned disability. Um, some of you might have heard of that called Henry Nouwen. Okay, so Henry Nouwen is a fascinating guy. He was a professor at Harvard and a professor at Yale, and he suddenly realized that all of the books he'd written were worth absolutely nothing. So uh, he was a, I forget exactly whether he was a Franciscan monk, but he was in some kind of religious order anyway. He, he, he'd had all these positions, written all these books, and he suddenly thought, all of this is worth absolutely nothing. So he went to work at one of the communities founded by Jean Vanier, and that's where he began to work with people who were so profoundly disabled that they really couldn't contribute anything. And he's written an amazing book called Adam, God's Beloved, which is about this young man called Adam who he had to do all the personal cares for. This guy was quadriplegic. He could basically blink one eye, and that was about it. And um, Henry Nouwen said that he, almost, he learned more about grace came for Adam than he did from you know, all the books that he'd read because there was absolutely no reason at all why this guy had any value at all from a human point of view. He was a burden to society, possibly wasn't even an awful lot going on inside his head, you know. But he was to be cared for and valued just, just for who he was. So Jean Vanier said, community is not an ideal, it's people, it's you and me. In community we're called to love people just as they are, with their wounds and their gifts, not as we want them to be. Not as we want them to be. He thought he was going to work in Jean Vanier's community as the chaplain, that was the job he took. Didn't realise he had to look after Adam as well. And Jean Vanier said, 
everyone looks up to someone, and Adam, I <laughs> get emotional sometimes, yeah. Adam will look after you. Yeah. That's what he said. He said, Adam, you will learn more from Adam than yeah. you will from the Bible. And that's what we've got to try and get to, is that, you know, are you on staff here? <coughs> you're working, the residents are going to teach you more, yeah. probably, than you're going to learn yeah. in church on Sunday. Yeah. It's that kind of dynamic, you know, we've got to allow that, that change to take place. And actually, you know, this is not a, a theoretical organisation where we have consumers and deliverers of the product, and, you know, it, it's a relationship that's going on here. Yeah. Perhaps not quite so obvious as Henry Nowen and and Adam, but, but still, that, that's the dynamic. This is the message translation, isn't it? The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Generous inside now from start to finish. So Jesus has done this journey. Mm -hmm. He has made, well, he's a carpenter or a builder, I'm not quite sure, but he's made stuff. Okay, he's hung out with people, he's, he's cried, he's had all these emotions that were scared of, scared of having in church. We go to church and wear what I call a swag, a sickly, weak, evangelical grin. Where you sort of go in, how are you? Fine, fine. How are you? All lovely. More tea, vicar. You know, it's, it's, it's that sort of mask we wear at church, isn't it? But this is really, really important stuff because, partly of this paper now, I'm not expecting you to read all of that, but the need to belong. A desire for interpersonal attachment as a fundamental human motivation. Some of you might have heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Okay, the idea that in order to do psychological work, we need first of all to have food and water to be warm and and to be safe. You cannot do CBT if you are being chased by a saber-toothed tiger. Okay, that is the basic. So that's one of the reasons why Mercy is set up the way it is, where it is it is to some degree um, safe warm, food, these things are important before we do the clever stuff, yeah. Yeah. okay? Um, you will not be able to work on your relationships or your self-esteem or your, your future goals if you don't have those basic kinds of things. I think we know that, and this is why if you go and see a therapist, they'll be quite fussy about appointments, I will be here for you 10 o'clock every Tuesday, I'll tell you if I go on holiday and we're going to miss a week, you know, so containing space is quite important. But what is as important is belongingness. And what that paper on the previous slide shows you is that if you don't have belongingness, it's actually as important as not having warmth and, and, and rest and, and safety. You're, you're, you will actually become ill, mentally ill, if you don't have this. You know, this is, belongingness is something that's valued in all cultures. All ages, all stages, all classes. This is a, a fundamental human motivation. What they're saying is this is as much a motivation as seeking out your next burger. Okay? Mm. It's, it's, it, we need that and we will strive for belongingness. So if we deprive ourselves by not looking in the shame basement, there are going to be consequences to it in the same way. And we're not just talking about social relationships. And we're actually talking about feeling of belongingness, if that makes sense, that you feel as though you belong and have value. And not belonging might look something like this. I'm part of this family, but I'm not loved by this family. I belong in this school, but I'm bullied at this school. I'm a member of this church, but I feel unaccepted in this church. I'm joined in marriage, but rejected in my marriage. I'm with my friends, geographically, but I'm unknown by my friends. I am a child, but I'm not loved as a child. So these sort of feelings... People have, this person has a marriage. Mm. Might even be an okay marriage. But they feel 
rejected in that, you know, that sort of feeling. So it's a story that runs through the book, and this is the, the Moses story. We've touched a little bit on this already, that he was born a, a Hebrew, and then pretty much immediately taken into the Egyptian palace and raised by the Egyptian princess. And he must have had some interesting conversations with his dad. Um, you, know, you can almost imagine him sort of looking out over the fields. And, Who are those people working in the fields at that? Oh, they're Hebrews, you don't need to worry about them. But they kind of look a bit like me. Same nose, you know. Um, so, you know, you, you wonder what he's sort of thinking there. And his dad's sort of saying, no, 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 no. And then, of course, it, he finds out he is a Hebrew. And then he finds out his dad slaughtered all his brothers and sisters. And, you know, it's, it's not a great sort of psychological start to it. Um, and then, Moses is obviously, working, he's obviously working through all this stuff. Because he sees something that he's seen many, many times before. He sees an Egyptian slave driver cracking the whip. He would have seen that throughout his entire life. Suddenly, this time, he kills the Egyptian. And he must be sort of processing his identity. It's like, what was it that finally triggered Martin Luther King to start those, 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 those rallies in, in the US? He'd seen segregation his entire life, but something rose up within him. And so I think something was there in Moses, and he sort of acts on it, kills the Egyptian. And then he says, really interesting, what I did must have become known. Now, he wasn't worried about being locked up in prison. He, because he was the prince, he, he, it was per, he was perfectly within his rights to kill mm. an Egyptian overseer who was being a bit harsh. Not a problem mm. in those days. Okay? What I did must have become known, or perhaps a better way of thinking about this is, if this becomes known, I will have to address the stuff I'm actually thinking about deep inside, and I might become known as a result. And I might actually have to know myself. So he, he can't deal with it. His, his sort of inward journey, his inward processing has been sort of catapulted onto the world stage because he's actually acted on it. Can't deal with it. So he runs away to become a shepherd. And that's what I think is, is happening with Moses there. He, he's terrified of being found out, and he's also terrified of finding out about himself. And he, he runs all the way over to, to Midian, where he hangs out as a shepherd for 40 years while God does his work in him. Mm-hmm. And he's got this deep shame inside him, this feeling of the spotlight, what I did must have become known. And you will ex- experience this, you know, particularly the residents will experience this, there will be times during the mercy journey where it's a really difficult week because you're actually getting to the bottom of things and you think, right, I have a choice this week. Do I see how deep the rabbit hole goes or do I carry on with my, with my gentle improvement that I've been maintaining since I arrived okay. and you can, you can do the gentle improvement you can do the six month program when you get here but actually there's going to be this pivotal thing where you think am I going to allow Jesus' light to, to shine in okay. and it's quite a scary really scary time and it can result in some backward steps you know, and deterioration, lots of snot and tears over the next couple of weeks. You think, what have I done? What Pandora's box have I opened? Yeah. But at the bottom, you know the Pandora's box story. Yeah. Okay, so it's a digression. Prometheus was one of the Greek gods and he um, felt sorry for mankind, so he stole fire from the gods and took it down and gave it to mankind. And Zeus was angry with him. So he decided to curse Prometheus. He chained him to the top of a cliff and had a vulture come and eat at his liver every day. So he was sort of stretched out, and some bird came and ate at his liver. It's a really nice story, this. Um, and because he was immortal, 
his liver grew back overnight. So the next day, his liver would be eaten again. And that, that was Prometheus's punishment for stealing fire. He also had to punish mankind, because mankind was now becoming like the gods. So he gave to this inquisitive woman, and it's always a woman in this story, unfortunately, same with Eve and the apple, it's a similar kind of story. He gave to this woman called Pandora a box and said, don't open it. Which is a really bad instruction to do. So she opens it, and out come all of the negative emotions, despair, lies, deceit, all of the negative emotions come out into the world. But crushed away down the bottom of the box is this little emotion called hope. And what Pandora does is she reaches down and gets out hope and straightens her out and bandages up her wings or whatever it is and releases hope into the world. So that's the, that's the Pandora's box story. That was a freebie. It's not, <laughs> not in my talk. Um, but this, this opening up of, of shame can be, can be quite scary. So there's a lady who's done quite a lot of work on this who we nicked a lot of her stuff. Um, <laughs> if you steal the work of one person, it's called plagiarism. If you steal the work of many people, it's called research. <laughs> so, so we have been doing research. Okay. Um, one of the people who we researched was, 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 was Brené Brown. Our sense of belonging can never be created on our level of self-acceptance. Mm. It's one of the quotes from her book. You might have heard, heard her book, Daring Greatly. Yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Our level of belonging can never be greater than our level of self-acceptance. So unless we actually love ourselves for who we are, we will always feel a fraud. Mm-hmm. Or feel detached or plastic in, in some shape or way. So, so these things are there, like you know, the shame base that we've spoken about. This, the shame conductor, this is the idea that there's lots of different emotions out there, but the person who's controlling them is shame. It's a bit like an orchestra. It's got all these different instruments, different zones to the orchestra, but the most powerful instrument in the orchestra is the one that makes no sound at all, which is the baton. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's the conductor's baton, which is bringing a bit more brass, a bit more woodwind, you know, it's rising up. And that's what shame will do. If you don't address the shame basement, it will bring up anxiety. It will bring up depression. Okay? You might be socially anxious, or you might be socially controlled. You know, there's some people who just want to tickle them because they're so perfect. They're very, very socially controlled, and their hair is amazing. And you just want just trip you up just to see what happens. <laughs> you just want to tear them outside. They're so controlled. Yeah. Boo! Like this or something. You know, just something. You get all naughty. Or some people are just very, very anxious. Because they, they're, they're trying to control things. It's kind of getting away from them. You have to put them to the orange. <laughs> I'm going to skip through. It's a bit more than Moses' story. So he goes over to the Midianites, and he spends some time there. And then God speaks to him and says, right, I have got a job for you. I want you to save my nation. Who's seen Moses, Prince of Egypt? There's a song about him, isn't there? You know, and it, I need to lead my nation and all this sort of stuff. But he says, no, 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 I can't do it. I'm slow of speech. I've got faltering lips. He probably, we go back here, he probably had social anxiety. He probably suffered from social anxiety disorder. You know, this feeling that when he stands up, he's going to stutter, or he's going quite red, or something. You know, he probably had a sort of biblical version of, 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 of a social anxiety disorder. Got panicky when he thought he had to meet Pharaoh. Fair enough emotion, but you know, he was there. Who am I? But it's, it, it's not just the symptoms of mental illness that he's got a social anxiety disorder. We get this profound I statement. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And bring the Israelites out of Egypt. There's this fraud, this imposter, this shame. Mm-hmm. Still there, 40 years in Midian. 
where he's been living a shadow mission. We'll come back to that later. But 40 years in mission, he, he's still... You know, it, the, this is not the excuse. This is the excuse. Yeah. This is why he doesn't... This you can get round. You can have an Aaron. He'll speak for you. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. This you can't get round. And somehow, between Exodus 3 and Deuteronomy 34, where it says Moses, who knew the Lord face to face, and did feel as though he belonged, and was known by God and by his fellow men, and by Miriam, somehow we need to get from here to here. And this is Moses' journey. So, God tells him to pick up a snake. Now, if you're going to pick up a snake, this is what you do. <laughs> this is the Bear Grylls power grip. So what you've got is you've got the snake here, in the sort of pincer grip thingy and you've got, got hold of the tail. Um, so this, this is the correct way to pick up a snake. Um, the first time the snake appears in the Bible, Moses runs in the opposite direction. That's actually the best thing to do. Don't try and be Bear grills. The best thing to do if you see a snake is to run in the opposite direction. If you can't run in the opposite direction, go for the Bear grills pincer grip and kind of control its head and sort of tuck the tail around here or something like this so you, you can control the fangs. But this is what God says to Moses. What is that in your hand? He said, a staff. He said, throw it to the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a snake and Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by the tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. This is a really stupid thing to do. Okay. <laughs> you know that phrase, catching a tiger by the tail? Okay. Really stupid thing to do is to get hold of a wire animal by the tail. It's going to bite you. But he reaches out and it becomes a staff again. And what God is doing here is he's forcing him to identify with what's going on. He was a shepherd of sheep. God wanted him to be a shepherd of people. So he had to get rid of this staff and actually give him a new staff. And of course the beauty, of course, it was the same staff. Okay? Moses was actually quite a skilled leader. He led the nation fairly well. A bit of help from Jethro with some delegation. You know, he did a fairly good job. The skills he had as a shepherd, he now needs to use as, as a shepherd of the nation. Okay? Mm. And it's this staff turns into a snake. It's the same staff. It's the same guy. It, and, you know, when you deal with shame, you don't necessarily change. You know, no one's asking you to go off and get a new job or get a new family or anything like that. You are still you. You are still an ENTJ, Princess Leia, whatever it is. You... You know, you haven't changed you. You haven't had a personality transplant. You just dared to reach down and open the shame basement door, or you've dared to reach down and grab the snake by the tail, whatever it is, and it turns back into the same thing. And Moses makes these three key decisions. He decides to go for obedience, trusting that he decides to go against instinct. He stops doing things the old way. He stops hiding. He stops trying to run away from the snake or pick it up with a pincer grip, whatever it is. He, he does it a different way. And he decides for provision. He makes a conscious step and says, okay, God, I'm going to go to Pharaoh. And those are the three sort of decisions that Moses, Moses did. I was going to tell you a story, but I've told you enough stories already. So he was a shepherd in Midian. He, he was five degrees off course. He was drawing water for sheep instead of striking the rock and getting water for the Israelites as he leads them through the desert. He cared for sheep rather than cared for people. He worked for a priest rather than had a priestly leading role in the nation. He fathered a son 
rather than fardoing a nation. He spent 40 years in Midian doing almost the right thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so actually, it, and actually, the more you think about it, he was perfectly good shepherd as far as I understand it. He was a good enough shepherd to get his boss's daughter in marriage. Mm-hmm. You know, he was, he was leading something that was actually looked fairly successful. But it wasn't what God wanted him to do. It was five degrees off course. And this is what you sometimes find with leaders, is they, they will do something that's almost right, but not manage to exactly be doing what God wants them to do. And it's quite hard to explain this, but one of the things we sometimes think, the guy called John Altberg, who's an American psychologist and church leader, he's written a book called All About Shadow Missions. And it's a Jungian idea from Carl Jung, the idea of a shadow mission. It looks like your normal mission. Yeah. But you are present, you know, what you are presenting is, you know, hey, I'm an amazing speaker, I am a successful businessman. You are presenting this thing that is not that dissimilar to your true self. You are the chief executive, you are the leader, but hidden behind you is this little shame figure, little yeah. devil on your shoulder, whatever it is. So shadow missions are but almost almost on online. So for example, Will will talk about his false self. Um, he's a church leader, he speaks in church every Sunday. He likes to be the entertainer, he loves it when people are funny. And he'll be preaching a sermon, or whatever it is. But there's two ways to preach that sermon. Does he preach sermon A, where everyone comes to the end and says, what a fantastic sermon, that was really funny, I particularly like the gag about 15 minutes in. And it's all about him. Or does he actually yeah. preach exactly the same sermon, but in that one, Jesus is glorified. Yeah. And it's who is he? Is he there to be the entertainer? My sort of false self, I would like to be a slightly above average. I don't want to be the best psychiatrist in the world. I want to be slightly above average and I want to be well liked and I don't particularly like conflict, so I hate it when people complain and that kind of thing. You know, I, I will go a certain degree, which I don't like to sort of avoid difficult kind of situations. And when I was in New Zealand, I met this guy called John Taylor. If you go to Auckland, the main community mental health centre for the whole of Auckland is called the Taylor Centre. And it's named after this guy called John Taylor, who worked there for 30 years. But the interesting thing is that he never actually worked for Auckland Hospital. He was never employed by Auckland Hospital as a permanent member of staff. He spent the entire 30 years there working as a locum on six-month contracts. Wow. And every six months, they would renew his contract. Wow. And maybe at some point he said, you know, can I work for no, it was just, it was only part-time. So he just renewed his contract. And after 30 years, they named the centre after him. <laughs> and the reason they named the centre after him is that he didn't care what people thought. He's a fascinating guy. He's a half-time Anglican vicar at the local church, half-time psychiatrist. And his identity was so strong in Jesus that he would deliberately take on the most difficult, the most challenging people, the people who would probably complain or be difficult, or have to be sectioned, or whatever it was. He would work deliberately with the most difficult people who everyone else had fallen out with. And he would work with them. And because he didn't care, they somehow knew that he actually was doing this for them. He wasn't doing it for the salary, he wasn't doing it for the kudos, he wasn't doing it for the self-esteem. And he was you know, very similar in his practice to the other psychiatrists. You know, nothing right or wrong, but because he was actually himself, he was better. And, and they named the centre after him. So, a couple of tricky questions for you there. <coughs> Some of you who are earlier on in your lives might find it a bit more difficult, because you might not quite know who you are or what you want to do when you grow up. I still haven't grown up, but there we go. But 
What does your false self look like? What's your favourite mask that you'd like to wear? And what would a five-degree change look like? You know, I'm not necessarily asking you to give up your current job at Mercy. You know, you may still work in, in, in the accounts department. That's fine. What would a five-degree change look like? Mm-hmm. Oh, those, those skills you've got, you're just going to use them slightly differently. So a couple of quite tricky questions there, but have a think about them while I shut up for a bit. So we've seen this quote already, but, you know, we, we need to allow our false selves to to die if we're going to start living, let alone leading. So I think, you know, I remember, I remember chatting with one of my colleagues at the hospital where I worked, um, just before I went to New Zealand actually, I was chatting to him and walking down the corridor, we were going on about such and such a problem, and she's a similar kind of age to me, and um, she said something on the lines of, um, yes, I think you're right, I think we ought to share this with some of the senior psychiatrists and see what they're going to do about it, and I just stopped in the corridor, I said, Jane, we are the senior psychiatrists. <laughs> and that's, that's not quite true, because there were people who were older, but, you know, we both been consultants for about 10 years. And, you know, if, if someone wasn't going to fix it, it's going to have to be us. And actually, while I've been away, she's become the quality improvement lead for the hospital, and it's, you know, really exciting to, to see what she's got on and done with that. And it, it just almost started with that conversation. You suddenly realise it's like, right, if not me, who, if not yeah. now, when, you know, kind of, kind of thing, yeah? Um, but... And sometimes, you know, we put leaders up on pedestals like this, but it, it's far better to think about leadership like this. This is the Castellas in Spain, and they do these, after the tomato festival, they, they, they do this kind of thing where they make these human towers. You, know, one, you get these strong men at the bottom, and then the medium men, and then mighty people, and so on. Up at the top is a little six-year-old boy. I don't want to applaud the little six-year-old boy. I don't applaud the strong men down here. You know, can you be this kind of leader? Wow. Rather than the little boy. Okay. Or to think about it another way, talking about John Maxwell, 360 degree leadership, he, he talks about levels of leadership. Mm-hmm. Are you going to lead from position? John tells a story about where he went to lecture at North Point, which is a sort of Marines training academy in, a, in America. I think it's called North Point. Anyway, went to lecture to all these colonels and generals, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, in the army, you, you lead from position. You know, the colonel says jump, and everyone says how high. You know, and it, it, you know, I want you to go on this mission here. You leave in position. People follow you because they have to. People follow you because they want to. You're a nice chap, a good bloke, go for a beer after work, whatever it is. You know, people follow because they like you and kind of think you're an okay kind of person. People follow you because of what you have done for the organisation. They know that you have produced good results, or you've produced a profit, or you've... Um, you know, grown a team or opened up a new office or something like that. And they know that you're a hard worker and a grafter and you've got the community values at heart. This is where we want to be, level four leader. People follow you because of what you have done for them. That you are a mentor, that you take trouble over them, you, you, you keep in touch. We're very bad at keeping in touch, aren't we, about things in terms of finding out what's really what's really going on with people. I emailed the, the, the chap who... At the beginning, I said, started every meeting with a good news story. Mm. I emailed him and a bunch of New Zealand people about a week ago, um, just to say, because I'd sent some copies of the book out to them and said, you know, it'd be great if you could do a review on Amazon.com, because we haven't got very many US reviews. Um, so um, a couple said, yeah, they do that. And then I just heard back from Mike, and actually after, after 17, 18 years, he'd um, left the job, because he been on a sabbatical and suddenly realised that he wanted to focus on suicide prevention. And the hospital wouldn't let him do that. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't let him 
spent just a day a week focusing on that. They wanted him just to give him a full-time acute role. So he said, well, I'm not doing that. I'm going to go and work for the next door hospital. So uh, immediately I just picked up the phone because I, I knew that he'd actually devoted 17, 18 years of his life to that hospital. And this wasn't him throwing his toys in the pram. This was actually quite a big, big thing for him. And, it, you know, it's, it's, it's being able to care. And he'd done a lot for me. I learned an awful lot from him when I was out. I thought, well, I wouldn't do something bad for him. And if you can, you, you get to, this is the sort of Yoda level of leadership. Um, people follow you because of who you are and what you represent. Generally speaking, you only get to do that after you die. Okay, so most people only do level five leadership. It's like Mozart, all that great music, you get to be dead for 30 years before they started playing it, you know. Um, but, you know, if you can, fine. But four is achievable. It's, it's this relational kind of leadership. And how do you do it? How do you do it? You, you invest in a few. You make time for conversation. You speak to the competition, you look them in the eye. It's much easier to have a different conversation if you're in the same room with someone. You look in their eyes and you see Jesus staring back, rather than the venomous pen in an email or something like this. Okay? So walk around the corner to the next office and talk to them. Have friends who make fun of you and who basically don't care. I play tennis every, I play tennis every Tuesday evening with a bunch of people. Some of them are not Christians, none of them know anything about mental health. It's great. We talk about rubbish. Um, you know, and it, it's a complete sort of really helpful de-stress. Go anonymous. You know, if you're stuck in your local church and everyone knows who you are, just go and be a mystery worshipper somewhere else. And just, just sit in the back. Just kind of go anonymous and just, just see what happens. And look upwards. This twin track of relationships here, but also, yeah. also relationships yeah. up there. And don't do this. We're going to talk more about boundaries and stuff like that in the um, session with the staff this afternoon. But don't do rigid boundaries where mm -hmm. you know, no one can get through your glass shell. Um, don't do no boundaries at all. That's equally unhelpful. Don't do oversharing. This sort of, you know, you give too much information away. There's different types of oversharing. There's sympathy oversharing, where you share because you want a response. It's like, can I have a hug, please? And the person does not want to give you a hug, but you, you share something and ask for a hug, and it's deeply uncomfortable. Okay. <laughs> Preemptive oversharing. I'm going to overshare before it's found out. I'm going to strike first, okay? And power oversharing. I'm going to overshare so much more that you haven't even got to come back. I'm going to tell you everything, and then I'm really interested in what you've got to share. I'm just going to power overshare. It's a bit like power dressing. Power oversharing, okay? You, you sort of stand up. You know, people have the, I've got an amazing testimony. Well, actually, I've got a very boring testimony. I was brought up in a Christian home, and it was kind of okay. And, you know, where it's the power oversharing. I mean, that's not nothing wrong with having an amazing testimony, but don't power overshare your amazing testimony. So, it's funny how these things sort of catch you out. Um, this, this is Melbourne, this is the Royal Botanic Gardens in Melbourne in Australia, and uh, roughly nine months ago, I became an international speaker. I was officially an international, I was kind of international, I'm from Scotland, kind of international, <laughs> but, but I was actually international. I was living in Auckland, and I was asked to go and speak at uh, a youth conference. They have things they call youth pastors, which is kind of like a sort of schools-based worker, church church employment, schools-based worker, sort of mentor, that kind of sort of role. And they've got several hundred of these in the state of Melbourne, state of Victoria, that are, are, are run by the churches. And they were having a sort of mental health thing. So, so I went across to do um, a talk I'm doing for the start this afternoon on, on, on resilience. and said, can you come and speak on resilience? And I went, 
guess so, definitely know what it is, but I found out, so that was okay. Um, uh, so I went, went to speak, I, I did two keynotes in the morning, and then I did two seminars in the afternoon, and then there was a second day of the conference where I was going to go to the morning bit for my own interest, and then, then fly back home. So I, I was on the plane across, and I, I suddenly realised that I'd become an international speaker. And I hadn't really thought about it too much, because I'd said yes to this thing, and then forgotten about it, and then panicked and thought, I'd better find out about resilience and write my talk. I said, I said, I have a to pick up. You know, and it, it, was, it was this sort of, you know, this silly thing that is if you do quite a lot of speaking, you think, oh, that person's like, you know, Paul Scanlon's an international speaker. I wonder if I'll ever be an international speaker or something like this. And I, I suddenly realised I was an international speaker. And it was this weird thing. There's two things, three things happened. The first was that I, I'd flown across the night before and I was put in this um, actually extremely pleasant sort of condo at the local Salvation Army College. Very, very nice, new build, living area, bedroom area, bathroom, you know, really nice place. But it was the most deeply empty evening I think I've ever had in my entire life. You know, it was so, you get to the foreign country and, you know, I mean, I knew that it was late, it was about 11 o'clock, so I just got a taxi to this place and it's all time zones and three hour flight and all this kind of stuff. So, but it was just weird this night, because it was just like, I should, I should be feeling great. And then I'm in this thing, which is like, you know, and I think you, you realise, I think, why businessmen watch hotel porn, for example, mm, yeah. because you just get to this thing, and you, the contrast between this great sales pitch you're going to do the next day, mm. and that hotel room is so massive, yeah. that you need to do something, you feel you need to do something. And then I went and did my speaking thing, and got to about five o'clock, I was absolutely mashed, I had no voice left at all, and... I think I was just looking on um, Twitter or Facebook or something like this, and I realised that one of my best friends who lived in Perth, Australia, was flying across to Melbourne, because um, he was doing something the next day in one of the hotels at Melbourne Airport. He's a plastic surgeon in Australia, and they're having a sort of plastic surgeons get together. So I, I, I messaged him. I do, you know, they do nose jobs on each other or something, I don't know. But anyway, whatever they do, they, they were having a get together the next day. And I, I just messaged him on Facebook Messenger and I said, I'm in Australia, phone me when you get off the plane. So he phoned me when he got off the plane and I got a bus out to the airport. We basically spent five hours, I had absolutely no voice by the time I went to bed, literally. Um, five hours just gassing away to Jairs in the airport and he had a really nice time and I had a really nice time. So otherwise we'd have both been sort of stuck alone in Melbourne. And it was this massive contrast between being an international speaker and actually the best thing about the whole trip was having dinner with Jez yeah. in the evening. Yeah. And it's his old friend I've known for about 15 years, one of my closest friends from, from university, and just hanging out with him, and it was, it was great. And it was just complete disconnect from what I was actually, actually doing there. There's a great quote here, C.S. Lewis. Yeah. Aim at heaven, and you get earth thrown in. And I think if we can, if we can be belonging-based, then you will have amazing experiences. You, you may be an international speaker. You, you may... Just be a, not just, that's the wrong word, but you may just be a, a great mum or, or whatever it is. You know, it doesn't need to be worthy of writing down in, in, in that sort of sense, but it, it, it's this aiming at heaven. And you do, you do actually get that thrown in. But even if you're not doing something that is particularly different to the people around you, it just feels so much better if we can get this shame thing, shame thing right. There's a great C.S. Lewis book called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And um, then I've read the Narnia books, I've seen the Narnia films, okay. The Dawn Treader is one of the sort of follow-up ones. And what happens on the Dawn Treader is um, 
the younger descendant of, of, of Caspian, decides to go on a quest. And these seven lords have been lost. They, they've lost. They went off on a quest themselves. And they took the seven swords of the kingdom with them. And Caspian, the, the, the tenth, this is the younger, great, great, great grandson or whatever it is of the Caspian you meet in, the sort of glossy one with the black hair in the second film. You know the one I mean? His great, 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 great grandson um, is, is this guy. And he sets out on the Dawn Trail. And each island he stops at, there is a temptation. So the first island, the Lord, has become the local mayor. And he's running the place. And the temptation there is to stay there. He says, come and stay in my house. You can serve in my court. The temptation of power. Then they go to the bit where um, everything you touch gets turned to gold and Eustace gets turned into a dragon because he touches the dragon's gold. And, you know, the temptation is there of, of, of wealth and then intellect, the magician and the Hufflepuffs and the pot thing. You know, the temptation of intellect and the temptation of beauty where, where Lucy is tempted to be beautiful like her sister. And then eventually then they get to the the Lord's Table. They can't even stop at the Lord's Table. They can't even, and it's literally called the Lord's Table, and it's kind of like, it's meant to be like communion. They can't even stop at that, because they're going on. Mm -hmm. they, they, they've got to go on. And they get to the end, and they're there with Aslan. They're there with Aslan, and they're saying, what is next? So you've got, you've got Caspian, you've got Edmund and Lucy, and, and Eustace. And Reaper Cheap. Sorry, I covered over Reaper Cheap. <laughs> so Reaper Cheap is there. And all three of them have resisted these temptations and they've come to the end. They said, what is my mission? Where do I need to go to next? They've actually travelled. They've they found a, a sense of belonging. But they're all very different. Caspian says, I need, now need to go back and rule the kingdom. Because my father is old and I will need to be king of Narnia. I think actually his father died when he was away. So he has to go back and be the king. These three go back to Finchley. Okay? They go back to being school children because their path lies somewhere else. And Reaper Chief says, I want to go further on. Mm -hmm. And he gets his little coracle and he sails off towards Aslan's country. Doesn't he? So they've all got three very different things. You know, king, school children, knight realm. <laughs> so, you know, he's sort of going off. And, there's a big question there, isn't there, to say sort of what is next once you've found a sense of belonging. And it might just be that actually once you've found a sense of belonging, your job is to go back to Finchley. Mm -hmm. What happens when you leave Mercy? What do you yeah. go back to? Mm -hmm. Some of you are going to go back to Finchley. You're not going to go back <laughs> and be the king of Narnia. Okay? That's fine. That's fine. Mm -hmm. Some of us may die and go to Aslan's country. I hope not today. Um, but, you know, there's no right or wrong in this. So choosing to live and lead with relationship as a priority is counter-instinctual, and yet it is the step to harness the power belonging in your life. So, mm. all follow Reaper Chief, and hopefully, little bits of that somewhere were helpful. Mm. 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 Mm.